Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. If you have your Bibles, your iPhone, I encourage you to turn with us to Acts chapter 10 as we're back in the book of Acts, a series we've entitled Power Today. And you know, we're in a season that I can only call a time of supernatural visitation. How do you quantify that? How do you qualify that? I, I think, you know, first and foremost, are people getting saved? And we're having record numbers of people come to Christ. We're seeing all these people come to Jesus. It's so exciting. We're having record numbers of people being baptized by hundreds more than last year, which was a record in and of itself. We're seeing people healed. We're seeing people filled with the Holy Spirit. We're watching God move in such a powerful way, all of which makes what we're coming to in Acts 10 extremely relevant for us. We've been praying that God would bring a great awakening to Southern Missouri. We desperately need it. The problems will never be solved by government agencies. I'm not against government agencies. They do what they can, but the problems are deeper than that. They're greater than that. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough manpower to solve those problems. And some of the problems, honestly, are rooted in the supernatural. It's going to take a move of God. What does a move of God look like? And what, what do people of God experience when God is moving? A part of that is answered for us as we go through Acts chapter 10. In this chapter, we're going to see a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, who is not born again, have an angelic visit. We're going to watch as the apostle Peter is slain in the spirit, goes into the trance and has a vision. We're going to watch as the Holy Spirit tells Peter about people who are coming up to the house where he's staying. And then we're going to watch as Peter preaches and a room full of non-Jewish people are instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only all of that, but this chapter is the beginning of a turning point in the book of Acts as the gospel now goes not only to the Jewish people, but now to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. It's the beginning of the great missionary movement. It's the reason why you and I are in church today because of what we read in Acts chapter 10. So let's pick it up in Acts 10 and verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. We don't know where he was from. We don't know that he was Italian. You say he was in the Italian Regiment. People were in that regiment from other parts of the world. He's a centurion. The regiment he commands has somewhere around 80 to 100 people. And he is stationed in Caesarea. While he's in Caesarea, which is a part of the land of Israel, he hears about the Jewish God. He hears about what he is like. And there's something in Cornelius' heart that God gets a hold of and Cornelius begins to pray to the Jewish God. Look at it in verse 2. And he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. We're talking about God-fearing. We're not talking about born again. We're talking about in the Jewish way of thinking, there were three categories of people, spiritually speaking. There were 
Gentiles, non-Jewish people who had their own religion. There were God-fearers, people who had been gent who were Gentiles, but who were influenced by Judaism, who began to pray to the God of the Jews, began to learn about the God of the Jews. They were God-fearers. That's Cornelius and his family. Then there would be a third category, proselytes, who were complete converts to Judaism, and that required uh, instruction, it required baptism, it required circumcision, it required a lot of different things that would happen to be a proselyte. He is a God-fearer. In verse 2, it says, he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. When people pray to God regularly, even when they don't know God, things are going to happen. Because God's going to show them who he is, and God's going to reveal himself to them, and that's exactly what happens to Cornelius. In verse 3, one day, about 3 in the afternoon, why is this important? Because the Jewish hours of prayer were 9 in the morning, 3 in the afternoon, so he is observing those hours of prayer, and at 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. You say, what is a vision? What is a vision like? Well, unlike a dream, which happens when a person is asleep, a vision happens while we are awake. In that moment, a person who's having a vision has what you could call an audio-visual communication from the Lord. It could involve angels, as it does in Cornelius's case. It could involve the Lord Jesus himself. It could involve you being transported in the vision to a place other than where you were at. You could go to heaven. You could go to hell. You could see a scene that you've never seen before that you are going to see or that somebody you love is experiencing. I mean, it can be any number of things, but it involves God speaking to you in a way when a person sees it, they know this is supernatural. In Cornelius's case, it's a vision of an angel. And so in verse 3, we read, he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him. So in this vision, he sees an angel coming close to him. And as he comes close to him, the angel calls his name and says, Cornelius, here's a Roman centurion. To be a centurion, you had to be the bravest of the brave. This is a guy who's seen a lot of battle action. This is the guy who knows what it is to be in the heat of battle, to be in the, the thick of a fight, to stand your ground no matter what the enemy is doing. This is a brave man. But when he sees the angel, he stared at him in terror. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and say something that I think is really important for us to consider, and that is... In the book of Acts, angels are appearing to people regularly. In fact, if we're going to take the book of Acts and we're going to say that it gives us a picture of what normative life should be for spirit-filled believers, then you have to conclude that spirit-filled believers are going to have encounters and interactions with angels. I'm not saying that it's something we pray to have happen. Certainly, we don't worship angels. But angels are a part of our service to God. 
In fact, in the book of Acts, 23 times angels are mentioned. In Luke's gospel, which is volume one of a two-part set, Acts is volume two. Luke wrote them both. In Luke's gospel, angels are mentioned 25 times. So between the two, you have angels mentioned 48 times. Christianity is a very angelic experience. You will encounter angels in your life. If you're a believer, count on it. Do you have a guardian angel? I believe the Bible teaches that, that people have them. For some, you have two or three. The first one had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but angels are a part of our life. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some have done this and have entertained angels without realizing it. You may interact with somebody who talks with you, who encourages you, who looks very human, but was in fact an angel. You may leave that encounter and then wonder or know in your heart, I believe that was an angel, or it may be heaven before you realize when you meet the angel there. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? In other words, angels regularly interact with us. There are angels here today. There are angels in this room. There are angels on this property. It's not that, again, we seek to see them, but it's that we're aware that they're there and they have a function and a purpose in our life. May interest you to know that in the book of Acts, there are seven angelic appearances. Seven's the perfect number. In other words, what you're seeing is God's people will have interaction with angels as they do God's work. You say, I want to see an angel. I love that. Then get busy doing God's work. One of the best ways is to start sharing Christ with people you know. Because angels are very interested in facilitating that. Let me give you seven, the seven instances. Number one, angels comfort us by reminding us of God's word. In Acts 1 and verse 10, the disciples are watching Jesus as he ascends into heaven, as they're looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Those are angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. They're comforting them. They're encouraging them. Jesus said he'd come back. They're saying, that's right. He's coming back. Second thing that angels do, they give protection. In Acts 5 and verse 18, they arrested the apostles, put them in the public jail, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Number three, angels can also give us direction from God. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. In other words, he's telling Philip, Listen, God wants you to be there because God wants to do something for you when you're there. Angels can give us directions from God. Number four, angels can make you invisible, blind the eyes of other people. 
and can make objects move. Just they're, they're kind of like the original Jedi. They're the real Jedi. I mean, watch this. Acts chapter 12. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Peter is in prison. They're going to behead him. They've already cut the head off. James, the brother of John. Now here's Peter. He, the angel comes up to him. Peter is sound asleep. What does that say about the peace of God that comes to the believer who trusts the Lord? He's supposed to have his head cut off the next day. The angel comes in to wake him up. Peter is one of these sound sleepers. I mean, he's just out. Debbie's concern is that I will never wake up if somebody's coming in the house. You know, I have a funny story. I don't have time for it, though. Um, Just happened. It was hilarious. So anyway, the angel comes and he kicks Peter, says, wake up, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Why is he having him to tell him this? Peter thinks he's dreaming. And the angel says, hey, get dressed. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. In other words, one thing that tells us is a vision can almost be like real life, like it's actually happening. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself. So they're walking by the first set of guards, the second set of guards. It doesn't say they're asleep. They just didn't see them. They're invisible. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Number five, angels can bring God's judgment on people. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod Agrippa is who this is. Herod Agrippa I, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man, because they were trying to get his favor. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. Number six. Angels can encourage us in difficult times. Paul is being taken to Rome to appear before Caesar. They're out on a a ship in the Mediterranean. They get caught up in a nor'easter. It's tornadic winds, hurricane force winds. And the, the owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, and the crew are all sure the ship is gonna sink. Paul, after 14 days at sea, not being able to see the sun or the stars at night, says this, last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Paul, y'all are going to make it. And Paul gets up and boldly says, this is what an angel just told me. They can encourage us in difficult times. The seventh appearance is the one that we come to in Acts chapter 10. Angels can direct people to where they can find out about Jesus. Angels don't tell people about Jesus. That doesn't happen until the end times in the book of Revelation. But angels will move God's people to where they can be at the right place at the right time, and they can direct people on how to hear the gospel so that they might be saved. In Acts chapter 
10 and verse 3, one day about the 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord, he asked. And he's not using, that's not like, what is it, God? It is a term of respect. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Do you realize when you and I pray, here he is, he's not even born again. But he's praying and his prayers are being heard and it's like a memorial offering. The Bible says our, our prayers are like incense to God. And he stores our prayers and he keeps them around his throne. Here's the angel talking to him and he says, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon. You can tell Simon's a common name in that day. The tanner whose house is by the sea. All that to say, angels are active in the lives of believers. We don't worship angels. We don't seek angelic encounters. But the closer you and I walk to God, and the more you and I are about his business, the more his priorities are our priorities, the more you are likely to have angelic encounters in your life. Because angels are literally everywhere. They're in this place. They're with you. Debbie and I, in, at our home, we, we pray whenever we buy a home. We say, Lord, we pray over the house. And we pray that God would set his angels on the property around the home. I believe God answers that prayer, that angels do watch over the people who love God. An angelic interaction with believers is normal. In fact, I love what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, great preacher from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in London. He writes this, because we are Christians, the angels of God are at our service. They are ministering spirits sent forth by God to serve and minister to you and me. Though we are unconscious of this, they are exercising this ministry. We are surrounded by them. They are unseen, but they are there and they minister to us because we belong to Christ. We sadly neglect and forget the service of angels. But if ever you feel lonely and bereft and feel you do not know what to do nor where to turn, remind yourself that your heavenly father, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, has sent angels to minister to you as he did to him in the hours of his greatest crises and his greatest agony. Just like they ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can be sure in those times when you are under stress and duress, angels are coming. You may not see them, but they're there. I don't know all that they do. I just know Scripture tells us that they're there. So I read that and think about this. I think about an encounter that I had. I've told it on Wednesday night. There's more to it than, than this, but... Um, a year ago, last April, I had a second surgery within seven months for cancer, and we were out in, in California where we had the surgery, and, and uh, so I had the surgery, and, and uh, the next day we were at our VRBO, and I, I went down on the patio, Debbie was sitting out there, I walked out, and all of a sudden I said, oh, wow, I don't feel good. And I'm kind of kneeling by the sofa. She said, I'm calling the ambulance. And I said, no, 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 don't do that. And so the next thing I knew, 
that I remembered was I was in the ambulance. So um, <laughs> she didn't listen to me. But uh, anyway, they rushed me to the hospital, and I've got a 105 fever and got a septic infection and, and uh, almost, almost literally died. I think your prayers really saved me, honestly. Because um, I can remember in the middle of the night, three doctors in the middle of the night, there was a heart uh, doctor, there was a urologist, there was an infectious disease doc. I asked one of them later, what the, were you in the room at night? Because I was on morphine. And they said, yeah. I said, what were you doing? They said, well, we thought you were going to die. So thank you for praying. But um, anyway, anyway I, was in a, I was in a lot of pain, and I'd asked them to let me go home. They said, if, if, if we let you go, you're not going to be able to be on morphine because that had really helped me. The pain was pretty severe. And I said, well, I'd rather, I'd rather be home. So we go back to the VRBO on Sunday afternoon. And, and that afternoon and evening, I'm, I'm really feeling terrible. And, and so it was 1230 on Sunday night. And I mean, I am, I am hurting. Now, let me just say this. I'm a baby when it comes to pain. So hurting to me might be a small headache to you. I don't know. But uh, anyway, I'm feeling terrible. And as well, during this whole deal with the second round of cancer from the day I was diagnosed to the time I had the surgery, I, I underwent a despair like I've never known in my whole life. So it was, it was horrific. And so my heart goes out to people who have had that. And so, you know, we get through Easter, men's conference, all that, but I'm just, I'm, I'm barely, my nose is barely above water. So I'm thinking I get the surgery, I'll be better about that. But uh, that night... The despair was massive, and my body was, I was in a lot of pain. And so I don't know why I prayed it. You wonder sometimes why you do certain things. But I, in that moment, as I was laying there, um, I just said, Lord, either send an angel to touch me. And I think I was thinking of Elijah in the desert, or I said, take me home. And in that moment, Instantly, an angel walked into the room. I don't talk about it much because it's very, very personal to me. But he touched me. When he did, fire went. It was like fire went around from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head. It was just like a vortex of fire that went up, went down, went back up, went down. And instantly, the despair was gone. And instantly, the pain was gone. It was a, a very interesting thing. And then he was gone. Um, and out of that, what happened was uh, the Lord did a, did a work in me. It changed me. I, I, I came back different. I, um, uh, it, it changed how I was doing things. And I think really... I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that what happened caused anything that is happening to happen, but what happened changed me so I could lead appropriately in the midst of what's happening, if you're with me on that. So angels minister to us. They're, they're there. You never know when you're going to see one, uh, but God sends them to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Back to Acts chapter 10, verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, 
and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And this is very interesting because this is the first of two times that somebody in the book of Acts falls into a trance. This word will appear again in chapter 11 when Peter recounts what happened to him. You say, what is the trance? What are, we, what are we talking about there? I want to suggest to you that what we're talking about here is what many would call in Pentecostal charismatic circles, although the phrase did not originate with Pentecostals or charismatics, it's John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who originated the phrase, but the phrase is being slain in the spirit. You say, well, what's that? Well, being slain in the spirit is when a person, uh, Jonathan Edwards put it this way, they lose strength. They fall down. Not because they were pushed, but because they lost strength. In the presence of God, they become, in that moment, unconsciously conscious. So you're conscious, but you're also in a different world in a way that allows God to speak to them, in a way that allows God to minister to them, in a way that allows God to change them fundamentally. At times that can happen. People can undergo dynamic personal change where they come out of it a different person in many respects. You would see that somewhat in 1 Samuel chapter 10, where the Spirit of God comes on Saul, and Samuel said, and when that happens, you be changed into a different person. So it can happen as a person is slain in the Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 10, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. The word there is ecstasis. We get our word ecstasy. He had an ec ecstatic experience. He had an ecstasy. And what I want to do is I, I want to take a moment with this because often in a move of God, and I'm not talking just about Pentecostal charismatic moves of God, but I'm talking about when God comes in an awakening in England. In the 1700s, there was an awakening. People were slain in the spirit. The great awakening, Jonathan Edwards, people were slain in the spirit. In the second awakening, in the early 1800s, people were slain in the spirit. What I'm suggesting to you is this is a common thing that happens in a move of God. So it's not just, let's not just think of Azusa, let's not just think of charismatic renewal or latter rain, which was in the 40s and 50s, the charismatic renewal in the 60s and 70s, or Brownsville or Toronto in the 90s. We're talking about when God moves in a dramatic way, this is a phenomenon that often happens, and it is a phenomenon that you see in the Bible. So the... Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but as Greek became the language of the world, really around the time of Christ, there was produced a Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. So they would look at the Hebrew word and they'd have to find a Greek word for it. So the Hebrew word for what we're looking at here is a word called tardama, 
and it refers to a visionary sleep. For example, and you'll see it in multiple places in the Old Testament. One example would be Genesis chapter 15. Here's Abraham, and let me just set the stage for you. So God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You believed me. Yeah, I'm declaring you righteous, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, well, that's great, but I have no descendants, so what good is it? It's all just going to go to my servant. And God says, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You are going to have a child, and so is your wife. You're going to have one through your wife. So then, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, a tardima. It was translated using the word ecstasy. He fell into an ecstasy. What happens is, Abraham, he is slain in the spirit. A person who's slain in the spirit, historical records, oftentimes, you know, maybe you've been in a meeting and you've seen that, or maybe you've never seen it, but sometimes people go down and they're down for a short time, but historically, people have been down at times for days. Records of people being down for eight days. So, it, I mean, God's the one who does the work. Who knows how long a person's down? Now, let me say this, and I want everybody to be on the same page. I want to interject this. You may not be from that kind of background at all, and you're like, oh, no, what's happening? Listen, I am not by talking about this suggesting that this is going to happen. I am not trying to get people ready for it to happen. But I do think this. We are in a move of God that is very significant. As somebody who I respect highly, who this week texted me, he said, you know what? You've been getting uh, a sprinkling from heaven. Get ready for a downpour. I've never used that word to him ever. And when he said it, my heart leapt because I've said that to you. Wednesday night. If you were here, you know Jesus was in the room. It was a very unusual service. He was here. I didn't know what would happen, but I'm telling you that his presence, the weight of his presence and the work of his presence is increasing. We've been praying for a great awakening. We've been praying for a revival. What does that look like historically when that happens? I'm just saying that when you look at awakenings and you look at revivals, this is one of the phenomenon that happens. As Abraham is out, God speaks to him, the Lord said, and gives him an understanding of what's going to happen over the next 400 years. And then we read on, and it says this, Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. So he's hearing from God, he's seeing things, and out of that, Abraham now fundamentally is different. He's convinced he's going to have an heir. That never changes in his mind. So this experience of being slain in the spirit or being in a trance is where you have the Lord speaking to you. And sometimes God wants to speak to us in a way that brings us into a new understanding of him. Sometimes he wants to do a work in us where he wants to extract out of us the things we've accumulated in life that have kept us become or have become roadblocks in our following of him. And he does that best by overwhelming us with his presence 
so he can do spiritual surgery on us. That's, I think, a great way to understand that. Being slain in the spirit is biblical. And when you look at the history of revival, and we could go back, you could go back almost to the Middle Ages, but I'll just pick it up with the First Great Awakening. There are several examples from history. During the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, and here's a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. He's a Puritan. He's a pastor. He, he preaches that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Before he preaches it, he practices preaching it in a monotone voice without any voice inflection because he's afraid if he modulates his voice, the people will be moved by emotion or by his voice rather than by God. As he preaches in a monotone, reading his sermon, the power of God comes down in that place and people are terrified they're going to fall into hell straight from the from the church. They're grabbing onto the pews and crying out, and it initiates this awakening where people, many people, are overcome by the Spirit for hours. His wife, Sarah, is one of them. On one occasion, she goes into a room where people were discussing the reviving work of the Holy Spirit, and her strength was immediately taken away and she sank down on the spot. Those are his words. They, those present propped her up on a chair, and again, her strength failed her. Jonathan Edwards called being slain in the spirit, their strength failed. Her strength failed her, and she dropped to the floor. As she lay there, Mrs. Edwards herself later wrote these words. I contemplated the glories of the heavenly world and felt a far greater love for the children of God than ever before. I seemed to love them as my own soul. This was accompanied with a ravishing sense of the unspeakable joys of the upper world. Edwards criticized for the emotion that was happening and, and honestly, in and of himself, not wanting anything that didn't produce fruit, was watching all these things happen. And he writes this paragraph as what he observed happened as a result of the encounters. Now, if these things are enthusiasm and be the fruits of a distempered brain, let my brain evermore be evermore possessed of that happy distemper. If this be distraction, I pray God that the world of mankind may all be seized with this benign, meek, beneficent, beautiful, glorious distraction. He said, I saw it do so much good. He said, I would love to have it happen. Critics called the First Great Awakening the great clamor because of the response of people, which Edwards recorded with the following terms. Extraordinary affections, tears, trembling, groans, loud cries, agonies of the body, the failing of bodily strength, which would be being slain in the spirit, fits, jerks, and convulsions. You say, what's happening there? When the power of God hits somebody, it affects people differently. Some people do shake. Some people go silent and fall flat. And he is recording those things as having happened. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, so if you're Methodist, this is in your background as well, writes of the great evangelical revival that broke out in London of people being thrown to the ground, swooning, and being slain in the spirit. He's the first one to use that term. 
He writes this on Thursday, April 26, in his journal, immediately one and another and another sunk to the earth. They dropped on every side as thunderstruck. He writes in his journal about a discussion that he had with George Whitfield. So George Whitfield was a Reformed preacher, so if you're in the Presbyterian category, then this is also in your background. Saturday, July 7th, I had the opportunity to talk with him of those outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. I found his objections were chiefly grounded on gross misinterpretations of matter of fact. So Whitfield wasn't buying it. But the next day, he had an opportunity of informing himself better. For no sooner had he begun to invite all sinners to believe in Christ. So he's saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe it's real, etc. And as he starts to give the invitation for people to receive Christ, it says four persons sunk down close to him almost in the same moment. One of them lay without either sense or motion. A second trembled exceedingly. A third had strong convulsions all over his body, but made no noise unless by groans. And the fourth, equally convulsed, called upon God with strong cries and tears. From this time, I trust, we shall all suffer God to carry on his own work in the way that pleaseth him. That's good advice. Let God do what he wants to do in a person's life. And don't be the arbiter of the way God works or the way a person responds. George Whitfield later wrote that people were both healed and slain in the spirit in his meetings. He writes, and I trust the son of righteousness arose on some with healing in his wings and the people were melted down. That's the way he put it very much at the preaching of the word. At the Cane Ridge Revival, which would be a part of the Second Great Awakening, which the Baptists called the Awakening of 1800, so it involved a lot of Baptists, so if you're Baptist, this is in your background as well, thousands of people were saved. One circuit rider preacher wrote this of the meeting, the noise was like the roar of Niagara. A vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. At one time, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment. Keep in mind, 25,000 people were there at the meeting. 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of 1,000 guns had been opened up on them and then immediately followed by shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. So if you're Baptist, it's in your background. If you're Methodist, it's in your background. If you're Presbyterian, it's in your background. If you're Reformed in your thinking in the way of the Puritan authors, it's in your background. I'm just simply trying to help you see that this is not a Pentecostal phenomenon. It's not a charismatic phenomenon. This is a historical phenomenon of what happens when the power of God falls on a place. I'm not predicting that happens here. At the same time, I think as we go through the book of Acts and we're looking what happens as the Spirit of God is working in a place, it's important for us to understand it, to give context for it, so that if it happens here or happens somewhere else you go, you have some kind of sense for being able to process what's happening, not, not just say, oh, that's weird. What's going on? Now you know, hey, this is in the Bible, and this is something that historically has happened. One more account, Mariah Woodworth Edder who was a revivalist at the end of the 1800s and preached until about 1923-1924, had meetings. She had a tent that held uh, thousands of people, 8,000 people, at times had 25,000 people at her meetings. 
She writes this, and I mean, her accounts of this are multiple. This is just one account. The power of the Lord swept all over the city, up one street, down another, sweeping through places of business, the workshops, saloons, and dives, arresting all classes of sinner. Men, women, and children were struck down in the homes, their places of business, on the highways, and lay as dead. They had wonderful visions and rose converted, giving glory to God. So unsaved people were being slain in the spirit. When they told what they had seen, their faces shone like angels. The fear of God fell upon the city. The police said they never saw such a change, that they had nothing to do. They said they made no arrests and that the power of God seemed to preserve the city. A spirit of love rested over all the city. There was no fighting, no swearing on the streets. The people moved softly. And there seemed to be a spirit of love and kindness among all as if they were in the presence of God. One night, a sleigh load of men and women were going to the meeting. They were jesting about the trances. They made the remark to each other that they were going in a trance that night. Before the meeting closed, all who had been making fun were struck down by the power of God and lay like dead people and had to be taken home in that condition. <laughs> That's funny. Because <laughs> you know, if they're struck down with the power of God, you know they're going to come out of it converted, and, and the thing they were laughing about is the thing they experienced. All that to say this, being slain in the Spirit is a real experience that has been associated with moves of God throughout history. Peter was slain in the Spirit. He had an ecstatic experience, and it changed his life. You say, what did he see? What happened? Come back next week. I'll tell you. But the reason why I'm taking time to talk about this is because right now we're experiencing a supernatural visitation from God. We're praying for an awakening in Southwest Missouri. We're praying for revival. And I think it's important that our thinking is informed by the Bible and by church history so that we understand how God has worked in the past so that as God works, we're able to say, Lord, whatever you want to do, that's what I want. I'm not saying this is what is going to happen. I don't have any idea. I just know we're at the front, not the end. I just know there's an accumulating weight of grace. I just know that the healings, the testimonies, I'm telling you, I didn't read all I had on my iPad, and I didn't have all on my iPad that we got this week. I'm just, I'm telling you, what we're seeing is remarkable by anybody's, you know, evaluation. I just heard, I'm waiting for the testimony, a second person healed of Alzheimer's. Listen, I don't, I don't know what, what God is going to do, but I know he's doing something. And if I can just simply from the Bible prepare you for whatever it is God wants to do, and you can be ready so that you're not afraid you enter into it, and you embrace what God wants to do, and you come out of this more in love with God, then that's really what we want. But all of this is a part of the supernatural life of the believer. May the Lord have his way in this church and in every one of our lives. Amen.